1: I don't know if you're a long-time wrong-thinker or maybe just uh, wrong-think-curious, but you've come to the right place. We're going to question the narrative. We're going to take it apart. We're going to glean whatever truth we can and then move forward boldly and uh, reclaim our freedom because that's what free men and women do. They don't stand around with their hat in their hand waiting for permission from somebody in authority. So with that in mind... How's it going? Here we are. We've reached the end of the week, and uh, it's been a pretty eventful week. Still a lot of stuff uh, going on around us. And I wanted to share something with you just because last trip to the grocery store, ah, I just, I was feeling it. I remember a time, and I'm thinking back about uh, roughly 30 years, when going to the grocery store, uh, this is before plastic bags really became the norm, right? So you were you were getting a paper grocery bag. Kind of the standard thing, I think a lot of us remember. And if memory serves, about thirty years ago, ten bucks a bag was pretty much what you could expect to pay. Meaning, you spent fifty bucks on groceries, you had a grocery cart full, you had at least five good-size grocery bags filled with things. Not so much anymore. I mean, I don't know if you remember going to the grocery store as a kid. A hundred bucks would get you a grocery a shopping cart that was just filled. To the top with groceries, but seriously, every time you go to the grocery store now, it's a hundred bucks. But you can carry it out like with two fingers. Well, I'm holding all the groceries in one hand, and it's a hundred bucks. So what happened? I mean, I saw a headline today that said, "Well, you know, it's not uh, inflation; it's the prices." <laughs> if some of those things are, they're not connected at all. But see, that seems to imply that, uh, well, the problem here is the stores are raising these prices and it's you know, just them being greedy, as opposed to your dollar is purchasing less. Anyway, somebody decided to have a little bit of fun with it about what it's like going grocery shopping these days. And it's true. It's hilarious. It's sad to watch, but you get so little. I thought this was kind of a fun send up of, uh, of the grocery shopping experience. Here's somebody at the, at the checkout line.
0: Find everything you need today? Yeah.
1: Great. Okay.
0: Yeah. Oh, God. No. Everything okay, ma'am? Oh, uh, it's just that you've only scanned a few items and it's already 60 bucks. Uh, I'm so scared. Okay, I'm a trained professional, ma'am. I've scanned a lot of groceries. I need you to stay with me. It's just that my in-laws are in town and they want a charcuterie board. Well, this isn't going to be easy, so I need you to be brave, all right? What's your name? Patricia. Patricia, all right. I need you to take a deep breath. We're about to do the cheese. Oh. <gasps> Oh my God! The numbers are going up so fast! Why do we have to be at Balderson's house? Don't look up there, it only makes it worse. Keep your eyes on me, okay? <sighs> Can't you just scan something less expensive? I can, but let's not forget it's the little things that add up, all right? Now brace yourself. I'm about to do the mixed nuts.
1: Oh my God, I'm gonna pass out!
0: Okay, bite down on this, Patricia. <gasps> Get ready, I'm gonna do the cured meats. <gasps> Anymore. It's too late. There's a line behind you, okay? You're locked in. I'm not strong enough. I know it looks like a lot right now, but I promise you, you're gonna get home and you're gonna wonder what did I even buy? <laughs> You've got this, Patricia. Get ready. I'm gonna weigh the grapes. <laughs> oh, what have you done to me, you sucker? Okay, son of a- your total's 257.84. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we can relate, right? <laughs> I mean it's funny on the one hand on the other hand it's like oh boy a lot of truth there anyway so let's uh, let's dwell on something a little less traumatizing than than groceries actually this one is is kind of a weird one but the the elections that took place earlier this week um look I'm just going to come right out and say it the GOP doesn't appear to be uh, gaining much traction I think uh, incumbents, for the most part, seem to do pretty well. But uh, but as far as, you know, the, the Democrats uh, who ran for office, they seem to, to sweep in a lot of different places. And abortion, believe it or not, seems to be the driving force for many voters. Now, this has raised a, a question here of, well, you know, should the Republican Party drop abortion from its platform? Right? After all, the Democrats are winning on abortion. In other words, they're, they're running for the sake of we're going to, to bring abortion rights back. I think Ohio actually did this by amending their state constitution. Now, you know, where I live in Idaho, we have a pretty restrictive abortion law. And so now there's talk. Well, see, this is what's going to happen. Now we're going to have to amend your constitution. The, the citizens are just because you people said that we can't have abortions anytime we like right up until birth. Look, there's a lot of cultural stuff, and I would even venture that there's probably some spiritual stuff that's at work here as well. But I got some pretty strong mixed feelings on the idea that, you know, the best thing Republicans could do is, uh, well, they should probably go ahead and, and abandon their pro-life stance. I don't think that's, uh, I don't know if that's a wise move. This is where the divide between statesmanship and politicians really becomes apparent. Politicians are going to do whatever it takes, okay? They're going to wet their finger, okay? Which way's the wind blowing? And that's the direction that they're going to go. This is what the public wants. This is what I'm going to give them. They're chameleons. Mitt Romney, probably the best example of this, right? This guy's a Republican. He's a Mormon Republican at that. But he presided over, you know, a big assault weapons ban in Massachusetts. He presided over one of the most liberal people uh, abortion laws in the country when he was governor of Massachusetts. So just because he's got that R behind his name and just because he's, you know, a member of the Mormon church doesn't mean that a politician is going to be scruple, scrupulous, sorry, (laughs) scrupled. (laughs) I'll get it out there eventually. Anyway, the truth of the matter is, and Sasha Stone points this out on her substack, it's true. Republicans are losing on abortion. They're not motivated to turn out the same way that Democrats are, unless Trump is on the ballot. Even then, the GOP is losing at a time when they should be blowing the Democrats out of power for a generation. So what's going on? Well, apparently abortion is what rallies the base. Sasha Stone says the war is over, and the GOP lost, at least for now. Just as they are on the right side of history with gender-affirming care, there is a chance that their desire to preserve life, now might be well-regarded in 50 years or so as fertility, sperm count, and population decline. Suddenly, future generations might think about how casually mothers aborted the pregnancies that are in such short supply. Maybe getting pregnant will be difficult, or carrying a baby to term, or male sperm will be ineffective, and everyone will have to turn to labs. Who knows where all this is going? But convincing young women not to have babies when they're in their prime, fertility-wise, might just backfire someday. So says Sasha Stone. I don't know. I, think, I get the sense we're standing at a bit of a, a crossroads here. And I'm not saying that abortion is the pinnacle of political involvement. You notice abortion really didn't become a major issue until it became politicized. Now, that doesn't mean that there weren't ways that, uh, you know, women had found, you know, to terminate pregnancies. Historically, I mean, even, you know, even among Native American villages, go see the shaman, go see the witch doctor or whatever, and, and they'll, they'll give you the right herbs or whatever to, you know, cause, you know, a spontaneous abortion. But there was a morality that people tended to carry in their hearts as opposed to what was written on the law books that made abortion, um, I don't know if taboo is the right word, but it was, it was not a subject that was discussed in polite society. Yes, people did it, but it was not regarded as, well, this is the pinnacle of my exercising of my rights, my reproductive rights, I believe, is, is is how it's portrayed. And I don't know what the what the answer is as far as how did we get to this point, to where innocent life is so casually dismissed and only the rights, the reproductive rights of, you know, the mother, are up for consideration. But I feel like we're at a crossroads here. And, you know, this, I look back at at slavery. Okay, slavery was absolutely, positively legal at the time of this nation's founding. And it was codified in the Constitution. I mean, it doesn't get much more legal in terms of recognition than that. Now, there were people who knew that slavery was wrong. There were people who were abolitionists even back in the time of the founders, but it was acceptable to enough people in society, and there were actually those who would lobby, no, we need slaves, and somebody's got to pick the cotton while we, you don't do the, the heavy lifting of running a new country and all that stuff. I think the people who are so pro-abortion today feel like they're on the right side of history, right? We're just standing up for a woman's right to choose. In reality, they share a very similar mindset And sometimes, uh, you know, thinking, well, it's not really a human life after all, that uh, the the people who were who were supporting slavery supported. That was the same mindset they held. Well, if we were dealing with human beings, it would be one thing to be concerned. But these aren't really humans after all. All I'm saying is, I think those who are on the abortion side of history are going to be looked at like the people who were on the side of slavery. Back, uh, you know, before slavery ended. Seemed like the right thing to do at the time, and there was, you know, safety there. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I want to continue on here for a moment with Sasha Stone's article about how the Democrats win on abortion— but uh, there may come a time where we look back, and future generations are going to look in horror at uh, at what it was like to stand there and support, you know, infanticide. Scary stuff. Sasha Stone, by the way, is a wonderful resource simply because she was a true believer. She was a Democrat up until 2020. When she left the Democrat Party in 2020, she unsubscribed to every database, every mailer, every text message. But she still gets the messages and emails and calls three years later. She says, I'm never going to stop hearing from them for the rest of my life. That's how relentless they are. Incredible news says a text message that sailed into her phone. And oh, look, it's Mark Rafalo. <laughs> Is that Mark Rafalo? No, it's not. I take it back. That's uh, Sherrod Brown. Looks a lot like Mark Rafalo, like the Incredible Hulk. Incredible news Ohioans just voted to enshrine abortion rights in our state constitution. So the base of the Democratic Party, older, unmarried Hillary Democrats, like uh, like Sasha Stone used to be, have one issue left that speaks directly to them. And it's a haunting cry from their past back when they still mattered, back when women's rights still mattered, when feminism still mattered. Now, for his part, Ohio Senator J.D. Vance responded to uh, the, uh, the abortion uh, vote. This way, hoping to find some middle ground so Republicans can start winning, here's what he said. He said, for pro-lifers, last night was a gut punch. No sugar coating it. Giving up on the unborn is not an option. It's politically dumb and morally repugnant. Instead, we need to understand why we lost this battle so we can win the war. And he goes into all of the details here, and um, it's, it's a pretty lengthy mailer, but... Sasha Stone says, look, Republicans have to understand what they're up against and how powerful the Democrats have become in the past 20 years. This isn't your mother's Democratic Party anymore. This unprecedented alignment of power spreads across culture, corporations, universities and government, all in complete ideological alignment. And they have an army of zealots who will throw a fit in large numbers when things don't go their way. Now, how are Republicans going to compete with that? By not allowing them to go on on offense, casting the right as the oppressors, which feeds their pathological need to feel like victims, their need to be defined by oppression, change the conversation away from the state regulating abortions and put the focus on them and how dramatically they've changed since 1972. Some of the examples that she gives is, you know, the, the question over, you know, what is a woman? Sasha Stone says Democrats have become completely disconnected from biological reality to the point that they no longer even recognize what a woman is, nor can they define it. And they're fine with allowing biological men to compete in sports and steal accolades from women's, like being the first female chess or Jeopardy champion. So abortion is now all that remains, the only living proof that there ever was a woman's movement. Sasha Stone says, trust me, they're not giving it up. It reminds them of who they used to be before pregnant people and uterus havers. And she says the only way to defeat this massive coalition of abortion activists is to call them out on their, basic, on their denial of basic reality, biological reality, which now includes the embryo they helped make. Even the language around abortion has changed. Pro-choice became safe, legal, and rare, which eventually became pro-abortion. That works best for a generation raised to believe that pregnancies are another form of oppression. Think The Handmaid's Tale. I mean, she talks about the empowered woman. This is a this is a really great article. But the, the bottom line is, she says, changing the abortion debate is going to require a hard look at things like teen pregnancy, single motherhood, supporting mothers to stay home with their babies, communities of older women to help care for the babies, better maternity leave and mental health support. All of that has to be part of the conversation if you're going to convince women to keep their unwanted pregnancies. By the way, I'm not seeing adoption in there, but... I think that's always that's always an option as well. Sasha says, I can't help but think we will all regret our casual disregard for life someday in the near future, when life becomes precious because it's so rare. How can we be sure we're doing the right thing when it's only been my lifetime that we all had millions of abortions without even thinking about it? She says, It'll take a half century probably before civilization catches up to the disaster of population decline. Only the future generations will see, as with gender-affirming care, who was on the right side of history and who was not. She says, as for me, I will spend the rest of my life mourning what might have been, the faces I might have known, the grandchildren that might have been born, and a way to forgive myself for foolishly following a movement I did not fully understand. Again, this is one of the reasons I really like Sasha Stone. I think she is someone who, uh, you know, her her eyes opened... And it's not that she became this diehard conservative commentator. No, she just, she became more attached to the truth than she did her ideological political beliefs. I think that's probably a good example for the rest of us. As far as, uh, you know, abortion and the abortion issue, look, I'm I'm solidly pro-life, but at the same time, I want you to understand, I have a great suspicion of the state. I don't like government to get involved because governments primary dynamic is force it's about well uh, you either do what we say or we will send men with guns and badges to hurt you and the vast majority of people like almost everybody believes that's good and that's normal so when you get the state involved you know force becomes an option and I well I don't like the idea we're going to hold a gun to this woman's head and we're going to force her to have a baby she doesn't want that's a little bit of clever rhetorical trickery of, you know, well, that's the, the handmaid's tale uh, kind of, uh, of mental manipulation. When can we focus on the innocent life that's at stake? And I don't think it's going to take laws to, to convince people, yep, that's an innocent life. That's, you know, that's something we ought to respect or that's something that we ought to, uh, to nurture and care for. That's something that people have to voluntarily come to. Now, what I'm suggesting is the change that has to take place isn't so much, well, we need to, our laws need to reflect, you know, the value of life. That's not where the change has to happen. The change has to happen inside our hearts. Something that no legislature has the power to do. No law on paper can change your heart, can change your feelings about, you know, a given issue or people, for that matter. The only way that changes is when you and I decide this is what I support, this is what I believe, I hold innocent life sacred. And when enough people feel that way, it's not an issue because who would think of taking an innocent life just for the sake of convenience? Well, you know, I just wanted to get this out of the way so I could continue having fun until I'm tired and used up and decide it's time to settle down. I know, there, there are... You know, there are nuances and there there are different uh, different reasons people may have. But on the one hand, I'm a little bit disturbed that, uh, that so many people have gone along, you know, for the sake of, uh, yes, you know, for the sake of abortion, we will stand up and we'll put on our pink hats and we'll go out there and raise Cain. And it was refreshing to see the Supreme Court overturn Roe v. Wade a little over a year ago. But I don't think that uh, the battle we're facing is one that's going to be won politically. And by that I mean, I think we're, we're going to have to choose. If we, if we not just a, you know on, on the issue of abortion, but if you believe that your rights are your own, if you believe that you are endowed by your creator, as the Declaration of Independence puts it, with certain inalienable rights, you're going to have to make the choice of whether you give your consent to the government in existence, which increasingly has no intention of protecting your God-given rights, but simply perpetuating its own existence. Or you withdraw that consent and do what you can to make that system as obsolete as possible. I know where I stand on this issue, and this is what I'm encouraging people to do, is find ways to reduce your governmental footprint. But in the meantime... You gotta know what your principles are. Okay, you're gonna be drifting like a leaf on the current otherwise, and carried this way and that way. It's time to pay the price, know who you are, know what you stand for, and then regardless of what others are doing or regardless of which way the crowd happens to be going, stand firm and stand tall on your principles. It really is the only way to be on the right side of history. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So I had mentioned in uh, the last couple of segments, one of the things that we're seeing is, you know, the idea of trans women in sports, Do we suspend reality? Do we step away from reality, you know, for the sake of uh, being inclusive and being, you know, accepting? Not necessarily. Athletes who were born male but who choose to compete in women's sports are demanding major concessions on the part of society. Got an article here from Nicole Russell. This was on intellectualtakeout.org, which says the best way to change trans policies in sports is that women simply refuse to play. Nicole Russell says as more youth experience gender confusion and join athletics. In the name of political correctness, sports associations often allow males who identify as females to compete alongside females. Now, these male athletes then beat the female athletes because of their physiological advantages. So if sports associations won't change their policies to make the playing field level again, the best course of action for now is for females to refuse to play. Now, this recently happened in the world of martial arts. The North American Grappling Association, known as NAGA, changed its policies and again will separate males and females after several females refused to compete against fighters who identify as women, saying they were afraid of the strength of these males. During a NAGA tournament in Georgia on October 21st, several female martial artists were pitted against men who say they identify as women. One male... Carissa Griffith, won four gold medals in the women's category that day. Another male, Cordelia Gregory, took second place in the women's category. Ah, huh, what a surprise! So it appears that no protocol existed for excluding male athletes who identify as female based on testosterone levels or anything else. To compete, these athletes simply could say they are female on registration forms for NAGA tournaments. Now, on a social media account... Jason Alexander explained that or Jaden Alexander rather explained that she refuses to compete in the North American Grappling Association's jujitsu events because after competing in July against a male athlete who identifies as female, the experience left her in tears. To prove it, Alexander posted photos of her competing against an obviously larger and stronger male. She says the experience was horrible and scary. I was absolutely in fight or flight mode. We don't deserve to self-exclude from competitions to avoid fighting men. We deserve to be there for rules and regulations put into place that keep us safe and protect us from these situations happening in the first place. Now in September, Taylor Moore, a 135-pound woman, posted a video on Instagram showing her grappling with a 200-pound male athlete who identifies as a woman. My biggest opponent yet... Moore wrote of that match at a Naga tournament. Now, incredibly, Moore won that match anyway. However, her coach, Jimmy Witt, told Breitbart Moore could have been seriously injured. Her opponent, James McPike, recently began going by the name Alice and wound up winning the silver medal September 9th at Naga's Grappling Championship in California after defeating another female, not Moore. Now, after posting her video, Moore, who had hugged McPike after winning the match, was smeared online by critics who claimed she opened up McPike to transphobia simply by doing so. Moore's coach argued that if the athlete endured such an unfair match, the least she should be able to do is talk about the experience. So in September, Naga's policy was that the organization didn't require women to compete against males who identify as females, but now... After these issues arose and women began to refuse to compete, the organization was forced to revise its rules October 28th to ensure fair play for women. We will have divisions for only biological females. Transgender females will not be entered into these divisions, a NAGA statement reads. Transgender females must compete in the men's division. We hope that the simplicity of this revised policy will help to avoid any future occurrences where transgender females enter women divisions. Now, that's not going to go over very well with the uh, the uh, pronoun mafia, but whew, sounds like common sense. Now, Nicole Russell says that a recent high school field hockey match in Massachusetts, a male student who said he identifies as a female injured a young woman playing for the opposing team. She was hospitalized. Under the Massachusetts Equal Rights Act, the male player was allowed to compete with and against females. By the way, when it talks about her being injured, okay, this is, You have to understand, I don't know if you've seen the video of this, but he literally knocks this girl's teeth out. Yeah, it's it's pretty rough stuff. But we're supposed to pretend, right? There's nothing wrong with this. Everything is fine. Now, the captain of the girl's team, whose player was injured, wrote a letter to the Mid-America Intercollegiate Athletics Association and decried policies that allow males who say they identify as females to compete against females. The safety of the other players is a huge concern, although there are others, the captain wrote. Dozens of American sports associations have had to address this debate. At first, it seemed that males who identify as female could compete against females in any sport at any time. But in the past year, several governing bodies have revised those policies because of a severe backlash from female athletes and their supporters. Last year, the NCAA revised its policy to say that each sport could make its own rules for participation. After a male who said he identified as female won last year's Tour of the Gila, a cycling stage race in New Mexico, the International Cycling Union decided this year that it would ban any male who has undergone puberty from competing in the women's category. Now, the World Athletics Council this year adopted the same rules for track as it did for swimming last year. Athletes who have transitioned from male to female and gone through male puberty are banned from competing as women. Now, besides a court challenge, which some female athletes have pursued, forcing a sports association to revise its rules on fair play by refusing to participate at all is the best possible way to ensure that females face fair competition and remain as safe as possible. Now, it's unfortunate that some women missed out on sports tournaments under previous policies, which allowed unfair competition. But quitting temporarily, as in the case of the North American Grappling Association, paid off in the long run. NAGA's much-needed revision of policy is also proof that media coverage performs a necessary good by exposing the unfairness of these policies or highlighting social media posts that expose what really happens when post-puberty males compete against females. So to many progressives, on paper, policies that allow male athletes who say they identify as a female to compete against females sound like inclusion and a way to promote fairness. But Nicole Russell says, in reality, such policies hurt females safety, privacy, and opportunity to participate in a fair competition. What do you think about the idea of them uh, the, the women, the biologically born women who don't want to compete against so-called transgender athletes? What do you think about them just uh, saying then we won't uh, we won't compete at all? I understand it's drastic. well now, Brian, some of these girls have worked their lives. they've worked their their entire you know careers through school trying to get you know scholarships and so forth. I get it. And you don't have to persuade me that's really unfair to the idea that they should have to, you know, sit out or forego participating in a sport that they trained in and and become very good at. And I wish there was an easier solution, but I think that's probably the fairest and most equitable way to do it. Just deny these so-called transgender athletes the ability to compete against real biological females. I mean, how many schools programs, right? Colleges especially. How many of them do you think would really survive if it just became, you know, a, a circus of, you know, gender-confused athletes out there? I have a feeling it wouldn't go over very well. Popular support would probably dwindle. And notwithstanding all the government support, well, you will bend the knee. You will pray to the rainbow God. (laughs) No. No, I don't think think a lot of people would. But I do think the idea that, uh, you know, women refusing to play in sports that are including trans athletes that's probably the best way to get the, the message across that this is not a game that we are willing to play. And as far as the howls of unfairness and bigotry that are, you know, sure to follow, just smile. It's just name-calling. It's just, that's frustration on the part of people who are trying very hard to manipulate others and failing. Just know, the more shrill they get, the more, uh, the more uh, unhinged these activists become, they're only doing that because uh, it's it's effective, you know, what people are doing to, to counter them. Man, I feel for the female athletes. I really think it's, it's a terribly unfair thing, but this wasn't their crusade, all right? They're not the ones who started it. This is a situation that was forced on them by other people with a particular ideological agenda. They just got to make the most of it. In this case, starving the beast because the beast is looking for attention. Well, take that attention away. I wonder how many other institutions in society we're, we're going to have to do this with before we finally start to uh, sift some of this wokeness out of the public mindset. We live in such an interesting time. No doubt about it. Got a link to the article in today's show notes. You can check them out at the com. Show notes for November tenth.
0: This is the Brian Hyde Show.
1: This is the Brian Hyde Show. All right, thanks for hanging with me thus far. We are at the end of uh, this is our, our final segment here. Three articles I want to point out for you. One is the article of the day. Um, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here, but I just, I, I love James Bovard's writing style. I love the fact that this is a guy who has worked in and around Washington, D.C. without becoming a part of the system. He is, uh, he's one of those observers out there who can really give you a clear, unflinching view of what's happening. And uh, this is what's happening the cog- cognitive decline of Joe Biden is getting obvious, really obvious. Like, impossible to deny. Like, they're going to show him the door. Well, James Bovard has this marvelous breakdown of what he calls our Potemkin presidency. If you know what Potemkin villages are, you'll understand what uh, what that means when applied to the presidency. And if you don't, look it up. It's worth, it's worth knowing the lengths that some politicians will go to to put the appearance of everything is fine, everything is great, couldn't be better. So that's one of the articles I want to to recommend. In fact, that is the article of the day. Next, this is kind of an interesting thing I first heard about uh, roughly, I guess, about six years ago. And that is the surprising breakthroughs in the medicinal use of psychedelics to treat mental health patients. Now, Raymond March has a great article. This was in American Institute for Economic Research, AIER.org psychedelics will help America's mental health crisis if the FDA lets them. A couple quick statistics here. Over 25% of U.S. adults have a diagnosable mental illness, an alarming 5% increase from just a few years ago. I wonder if COVID had anything to do with that. While some mental illnesses are temporary and can be treated, those with severe cases, that's roughly 5% of the population and growing, are not so fortunate. Well, the FDA is about to make a decision that could help millions of Americans struggling with mental health, or with mental illness, rather, or it could just leave them struggling as mental health concerns rise across the nation. In June, the agency drafted guidance to introduce a pathway for psychedelic drugs to be approved for patient use, like other prescription drugs. Now, the FDA is primarily concerned with how to develop clinical trials for psychedelic drugs that can meet their typical standards. And it's a difficult task psychedelics would likely have to be manufactured differently to meet FDA protocol. Their side effects would have to be documented and assessed, and designing standard placebo tests is also a challenge. Now, these and other considerations have to be carefully thought out before the FDA is willing to create a pathway for easier access. Now, of course, the FDA, except when it comes to vaccines, is known to be overly risk-averse, even at the cost of patient well-being. This is particularly true for so-called party drugs, with a mysterious and sometimes taboo past. But these concerns are tiny compared to the promise that psychedelic treatments provide given the state of mental health in the U.S. And there are psychedelics like ecstasy and MDMA, MDMA rather that can induce euphoria even when users confront traumatic experiences. And this is one of the things that Uh, that I had heard about several years ago that really sounded interesting. People with PTSD, soldiers returning from war zones and so forth, can sometimes find help with psychedelics like psilocybin or ecstasy. This is not some far-fetched reach to use psychedelics to treat severe mental illnesses. Modern research and medical history are on the side of research that says, no, it actually works. Consider the heartbreaking story of Rachel Kaplan, who endured extreme abuse as a child and could not confront her traumas without undergoing debilitating psychological pain. Well, after three years of using MDMA-based psychotherapy, Rachel went from self-harm and regularly considering ending her life to, in her words, a sense of peace and a love for herself, others, and the earth. So countless other treatments failed. MDMA didn't. Now, that doesn't mean that, therefore, everybody should be taking handfuls of the stuff. It's just the recognition that sometimes this, as well as other psychedelics, can be just beneficial. The FDA needs to recognize that. The FDA granted ecstasy breakthrough therapy status in 2017, expediting its process to become an approved treatment. Generating an approval process for other drugs like these would be the next logical and necessary step. So... As it often does, the FDA has asked for feedback from drug providers, medical professionals, and others over 60 days after distribution. Well, that time has passed. Now it's time for the FDA to decide. That should be the easiest decision that it's made in decades, so says Raymond J. March. All right, one final article. This is from Annie Holmquist, and it has to do with why progressives hate memorization. And he says, as a student, I was a whiz at memorization, so much so that I basically uh, remember memorizing two lead roles for different plays, one at 13 and one at 16, after only one serious and focused read-through of the scripts. Now, she says, as an adult, I see myself mirroring my mother's shock at such a feat, but at the time, such ease in memorization was simply second nature. But she says, while it was a hugely beneficial learning device for her as a student... It often seems like a sidelined and disgraced learning technique in the contemporary education system. Derisively railed as drill and kill, learning that uses and encourages memorization doesn't help the child to think creatively or fully express his feelings. At least this is what supposed experts have said in recent years. But there's a new study that calls such memorization bashing into question, though. The study from the Journal of Applied Cognitive Psychology found that grade school students who learned multiplication tables through flashcard techniques were able to retain the math facts better than students who learned them by chanting them out loud. Researchers concluded that using flashcards to memorize multiplication tables was beneficial for both short-term and long-term memorization. The Epoch Times wrote, reporting on the study, this is because... Flashcards are a part of what researchers call a retrieval practice, which occurs when one attempts to retrieve and bring a memory to mind, and it's part of creating a long-term memory. So if memorization is such a helpful learning technique, then why have so many schools sidelined it in recent years? Maybe it's because memorization reinforces the importance of facts, and in our world of moral relativism, facts must be avoided at all costs. Michael Knox Barron wrote about this decades-long progressive trend nearly 20 years ago in City Journal, noting its unfortunate effect in U.S. classrooms. Memorization was an oppressive act, the progressives said, and the content memorized, such as poetry or other cultural elements of Western civilization, was sterile and unfruitful and promoted a culture of servility harmful to the free creative play of the mind. So to replace such harmful practices, education experts introduced constructivism, Now, that's a new name for an old progressive desire to turn kids into little anarchs who, if the progressives' daydreams come true, will grow up to overthrow the oppressive civilization into which they had the misfortune to be born. An education P.A.D. enamored of the constructivist theory argues that because constructivism de-emphasizes the rote memorization of material, it promotes teaching practices that are rich in conversation. Through these conversations, the teacher comes to understand what the learner wants to learn. "'Kids, in other words, should be free to do as they please. "'The teacher in the role of guide on the side "'rather than sage on the stage "'should cater to their whims. "'Anything else is galley slavery.'" Now, unfortunately, Annie writes, "'Such a philosophy is only superficially "'a philosophy of liberty.'" Barron said, "'The progressive exercises in guided fantasy "'and sensitivity training "'that have replaced memorization and recitation "'do little to free kids' selves.'" By contrast, he calls the older education techniques, such as memorization, genuinely liberating. He says they built up in the child a more powerful mental instrument, one that will allow him in later life to make good use of his freedom. They cultivate those critical powers that enable an educated adult to question authority intelligently. The older techniques also unlock doors in the interior world of the soul. That's a beautiful way to put that. Annie Holmquist says, put differently, memorization aids the education of the whole child, his body, soul, and spirit, enabling him to correctly discern and navigate a world fraught with lies and false opinions because he has building blocks of truth embedded in his mind. So why not use memorization as a little test? If your child's school belittles this learning technique, implying that memorization hinders a child's development, perhaps it's time to find a new school one that values the facts and truth that memorization helps establish. That's fun stuff. That's a good article. I've got a link to it in today's show notes. Again, the show notes for November 10th, 2023. This is from uh, Annie's Attic, Substack. .substack AnnieHolmquist.substack.com. She's a regular contributor to intellectualtakeout.org as well as, uh, uh, she's one of my... uh, one of my favorite writers just because she's got a lot of common sense and i think a lot of answers that uh, that people may be looking for so that's the show today hopefully it's left you a little more certain of who you are and where you stand and less uh, fearful of whatever's coming down the pike i think we have some very interesting times ahead of us like someday down the road assuming we all survive people will stop you were there you lived through those times We're definitely going to have some tales to tell. Let's make sure that we're on the right side of history, though, and that's a matter of having your principles intact more so than your politics. This is The Brian Hyde Show.